Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is Olivia Dubison, who is based in Switzerland and has the intriguing title of Head of the Future Work for the global pharmaceutical company Novartis. Knowing more about the future of work is critical to any leader who wants to inspire their team, build a great division or organization. I first met Olivier when he attended the recent Human Resource Leadership Conference in Sydney, and I was really interested in some of the things he talked about. As you'll hear, he has a fascinating background that includes starting as an architect, moving into management, then having a six-year stint at BP in the UK, where his final role was Employee Experience Director. He then moved to Switzerland with Novartis, where he became the head of the future of working. As you'll hear, he is also quite an entrepreneur and has been involved in helping to start up some not-for-profits and smaller ventures as well. In our chat, he talks about the many influences that will shape the future of work. One of the really interesting concepts he talked about was the importance of graduating from hybrid one to hybrid two. So hybrid one is where the organization provides guidelines and the employee chooses how they'll operate in those guidelines. And hybrid two, which is where the team works out where and when people work. He also discusses working in the metaverse with virtual reality goggles. And although it's taken off slower than he thought, he really believes that this will be a significant part of our work going forward. Our chat helped me understand many of the possibilities in the future of work, and I've learned a lot. I hope you do too. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to have on the show Olivier Jubison, all the way from Switzerland. Welcome, Olivier. Thank you, Graham. You know, thank you very much for your warm welcome here. What does care in the workplace mean to you? Yeah, it's something I think very important. It's about, you know, um, it's about kindness and and compassion. And that's how I translate it. And, and I think in the workplace, when you apply that, you actually make people feel a welcome. Like you just welcome me on your podcast. Um, I think that when you have kindness and compassion, you have the ability to empathize more with people as well. You have um, you are developing things like listening, uh, which are important skills, and not just for leaders, but also for anyone in the workplace to be able to uh, to experience. So that's what care in the workplace means to me. It's it's really about kindness and compassion. You have a very uh, interesting background. Like I was formerly a recruiter and very interested in how people's careers are evolved. And, uh, you know, you started off as an architect. You're now the head of the future of working at Novartis based in in uh, Switzerland. Just for our uh, listeners, can you have a brief overview of that journey and how you ended up in this current role? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, 
And so let me start with that architect point. Um, when I was 16, I decided to leave the normal uh, schooling program in Belgium. And uh, I wanted to follow a passion, which was design and architecture. And there was only one school in Belgium, which allowed me to do that at that young age. Um, and I did a, a special program that helped me to you know, kind of a bridge to my 18s when I had then to decide where, what do I do? Do I follow that passion even further or do I go for anything else? Um, and, uh, and I decided to go for something else, uh, interestingly enough, which was more computer and computer science and et cetera, which, uh, which gave me opportunities to, to do many other things in life. Um, but I still have that passion very strongly anchored into you know, what I do and, and the eye for design is important. And when I graduated from from uh, from my master, then I started to to move into the world of corporates. Um, but um, funnily enough, it's not I've not had enough uh, through the corporate world, so I always had some kind of ventures on the side, which um, which I've done mostly for fun. Um, you know, sometimes you know with some upwards uh, benefits, you know, on the reward side, and someone with some really deep downwards benefits, you know, on the reward side. You know, when you invest into uh, into what you do and you lose everything, it's not very nice experience, but you learn from it. And that's one of my big learnings. Um, and so, on my corporate track, I've um, been involved on, early on in the HR world since 2005. Um, someone, uh, one of my friends, said, "Hey, Olivier, we are looking for webmaster in our company." And, why don't you join us? Uh, I think that you would be fantastic. I was like, well, you know, why not? Uh, I don't know. I, I have multiple skills. Maybe I can be helpful. And very early on in that uh, company, I started to to move away from doing what I was supposed to do uh, to join uh, more of a consulting um, type firm that was focused on helping clients transform their organizations and very much focused on the human side of it. So that's been a kind of a, my journey towards the, the human element started from a very young, I would say, um, part of my career. And uh, and since then, then moving towards uh, helping people transform has been kind of my um, my bread and butter, has been very focused on how uh, digital has a role to play. And uh, later on, when I moved towards uh, VP uh, in 2012, then was again another transformation, but more from a client perspective. So instead of advising people, can I just you know uh, do the work? From the from scratch, uh, it was so fun um, that we, we we delivered quite great transformation there, and uh, I mean workday etc. Which I'm, many people I'm sure you know will recognize you know as a consumer or as a user or you know as one person in in the HR department trying to make it work, and um, so using those transformation there was a moment which I think is important for for our uh, audience who, that really transformed. My journey, my career, I was probably meant to be in the transformation space, but then there was a moment where it moves towards the experience space. Mm. And I do remember that moment very, very clearly. Um, in 2016, I was offered an opportunity to uh, I kind of remember even the, the moment it happened. So OCHRO used to every year go to the board of directors at BP and, and share a story and picture them, you know, all of what we do, which is great, and but also what we could do, which could be even greater. And uh, I do remember that he kind of gave a, a, an opportunity to my boss at the time to say, hey, um, we should do something about talent and how much we're investing in, in the digital space. So can you get your team to, to produce something? And, uh, and then we were in the room and he said, okay, so uh, we are the 25th or 26th of July. Uh, I don't remember the exact date, but it was around July time, just before the holiday. And in UK, I was based in London. The, 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 the August time is 
typically where the executives switch off and then you start again in September. So I was like, okay, the board is in September. Uh, we are end of July. We have to produce something and we have one month. So who is around you know, during that time? And you know, I did not have a, a kid yet. So I was kind of the one that was going to be around. So somehow I started to produce a movie called The Future is Bright, but Different which was picturing the future of work at, um, at BP. And, um, and then it went to the board and the story was, it was really successful. They wanted everything, even if it was a vision, <laughs> they wanted everything. So we started the journey to discover design thinking and how to empathize with people, how to listen to their needs. And, uh, and, and doing that journey ended up you know, leading the experience team there. And in 2019, after a large transformation that touched culture, HR and systems, um, Novartis then, decided to uh, take me under their wings because they were doing a massive culture transformation, um, which is still ongoing. And uh, they said, okay, we need to change our mindset. We need to change the way we think. And that's what I really love in the, the job of experience. It's not just about processes. It's about changing how people think and behave. And so that's been kind of fantastic journey so far uh, there. And, uh, and last year with um, uh, following the pandemic and, the discovery of the future of working, uh, which was very much anchored towards, I, I think that's still a narrative that's going on, which is about where and when we work and flexibility, etc. Personally, I think there is too much emphasis on where and when, too, way too much emphasis on where and when, uh, as you probably you know, remember some of our earlier chats before, uh, <laughs> before today. And, and we need to emphasize more on the how we work. And I think that's been my journey. And hence, you know, we started to create this department called Future of Working, which was studying and experimenting with uh, different practices, different ways of doing things. And uh, it touched a very variety of domains, from changing the way the office looks to changing uh, the way people behave in the office, uh, changing the way that we are using space, in including home space. Uh, changing the way that uh, we are teaching leadership, changing the way that we are uh, we are caring for people. So actually, there was a wide range of activities that we experimented with. And, and using those experiments, we learned that the future of working for Novartis was hybrid, but not hybrid like most companies see hybrid, which, which yeah. I call hybrid 1.0, but hybrid 2.0, which is take care of how people work. That's been my journey. Um, and the site, as mentioned, you know, a bit of a corporate um, venture tracks you know, in, in startups uh, in variety of domains, like uh, you know, from luxury goods import in, from France to, to the UK to um, you know, building a, a property business now. So there's been a, a variety of uh, different tracks. And, and, and then I always had this kind of element of, I wanted to have fun uh, and, and balance it in life because I, I believe that there is a balance that needs to happen and, and from mental health and physical health and emotional health. And that's kind of been my uh, equation of balancing it all. It's been, you know, do what you love or what you would like to love, you know, there and your passion and do something which um, also is very interesting, but uh, balance it both so you can really flourish and learn and grow. And that's been my journey. Sorry, it's been yeah. a bit long, but you know, I think that's... Uh... No, it, it's um, great to hear that evolution. And uh, we should mention to our listeners that we first met at an HR leadership conference in Sydney uh, back in um, back two or three weeks ago. I can't quite remember what the date was, but 
I sat in on, um, you know, your presentation to the group and, um, you know, I was really um, impressed by, you know, what you were proposing, how work would change. And um, so for those that um, weren't there with us, this concept of going from hybrid one to hybrid two, how does that, how would you decide to do that in a team to move from hybrid one to hybrid two? How would I decide to do that? How would I uh, suggest people to do that? How, how you would suggest people do that? Yes, uh, because I'm sure I will do it differently. <laughs> to me, um, that's uh, so. It's um, I think first there is a, a deep recognition of um, of where uh, people are right now. Um, in in, and I I kind of see. Uh, and it's not just me seeing, observing. It's, it's also the, the, the data we are capturing. So now I'm sitting on three years of deep research in this space, um, you know, with millions of data points. And I think that actually we have more data points than what Microsoft has released into the productivity paranoia report or you know, some of the Gartner report. And I look at those, I'm like, yeah, 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 I can confirm all of that, but just using the internal data. Um, so I don't even need the external data to tell me what we already know. And, Effectively, what I, f- I find, you know, from a, uh, the, the, the current narrative that's happening in the world is, is this dilemma between organizations that kind of are uh, in a post-pandemic, um, all hear about productivity, efficiency, performance, uh, you know, cost pressure, uh, potentially recession. We hear those words. And I think we, we all hear them. You just need to open your... Uh, your, your your news app, and you will find something that uh, a company has decided to fire X many people, or uh, that the tech industry is in danger, or the the, the stock market this, etc. I mean, we we are bombarded with information that tells us that something is happening that's no, it's not always look positive. On the other end, we have employees, and in employees, I mean people, because. Um, employees, not necessarily are just employees like done in a chain. If we look at an org design, like uh, at the end, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, employees like people. So that means also managers and they are there and there is a gap between the two. And there's always been a gap. I find that there is a growing gap in the sense that organizations are, are trying to say like, look, we are in this rush to find solutions and then we have to somehow apply some logic. So... We are going to, instead of letting you discover what works for you, we are going to uh, impose it. I think that's dangerous, but okay, fair enough. Companies have the opportunity to do that. There is no one that will say, don't do it. I mean, if someone decides in an organization at an executive level that people have to go back to the office, so be it. It's a policy and you enforce the policy or not, and then you see the results. Mm. But all of the results that we've seen shows it's not going to change. Mm. So what's happening? is this growing gap between the people and the organization. So what we found is that when you are focusing on the people and you are then uncovering the performance of teams, you are finding that teams that um, have this ability to be much more, um, not it's not a control thing, much more uh, responsible and accountable for how they work are going to work in a much better way than teams that just follow the orders from organizations. Mm-hmm. And so what we are finding is who is lost in this overall equation? And the people lost are typically the first-line managers, those that have been promoted from the ranks or been acquired you know, to lead a team of individual contributors. Sometimes, or most times, not even have been um, taught 
any ways of leading. They just they just don't know how to move from managing and controlling to leading teams, making teams feel uh, really you know connected, feel they collaborate together. They have a, a sort of a leaping forward um, vision or objectives that they can all anchor to. Um, they've not been taught that. There's no school that really teach these kind of skills of you know, how to lead. You know, most of what we hear is uh, how to manage financials or how to manage, you know, um, to how to manage businesses uh, or how to do marketing. But but we are lacking those skills. And and what I found is then when we move from hybrid one, so a lot of the people then say, oh, okay, I'm losing flexibility, which always existed. And flexibility is about in most cases, okay, you know, I'm doing some generalism here, right? I can't say flexibility for a service organization or for healthcare, like a hospital. You might have a different definition of flexibility. However, in the common sense of how people in the office work, it's like, okay, sometime I have to take some time to take care of my kids or or to, to be able to be at home for something. That always existed before COVID, you know, that mm. always existed. Most companies will give a certain allowance for people to work from home and the technology such as the one we are using now has been booming since then because you know people realize that with good internet connections they can work from anywhere. Yeah. COVID was a learning experience, I think a, a huge global experiment, very sad one, but it served a global experiment to learn that despite the restrictions that happened, that where you have to work from home in order, or you have to be in the office in order, because there was this mix going on. People learned that um, they, they they were very confident in the way that they learned new skills to collaborate and to exchange with people. However, then we come to the after COVID. And in the after COVID, um, if you continue to focus on, on what companies are doing, which is you know, kind of a bringing people and saying, oh, we still need to see you in offices. We still somehow you know, need to find a new equation there. Uh, and using the hybrid one concept, which is, Okay, I'm going to impose where and when. It's easy, no? Do that. But not focus on the how people work. Then, you know, it's it's going to frustrate the employees that they've learned so much and so hard during COVID that they can actually do something useful despite the restrictions. So- I, I heard um, today, I was listening to um, another webinar and there was an HR director on there and she turned about, talked about, you know, groups having team agreements and that sounded very similar to what you described. You know, they work it out themselves. You know, they that they, they they share the demands that they have in their personal life and work life, and they work out together how to go how to go forward. And I think that's a very a very positive development. And and I've also previously interviewed people from um, Boston Consulting Group, and even way before COVID and all this sort of stuff, they work on incredibly intensive projects. And they have this concept called predictable time off. So when they start a project, they all talk about something that's really important to them. And for some, it might be quality time with their seven-year-old child. For someone else, it could be writing a novel. For someone else, it's going to the gym. And they work together on how they can all have those predictable times off and mm-hmm. and they let the client know that in advance as well. So, you know, that's they've always been one of the great places to work, BCG, and um, they adopted that very early, even before the p- pandemic began. And I'm sure they focus very much on the, on the manager of these teams to have the skill to be able to have those conversations, which I think is, is really where organizations should focus is 
is encouraging managers to have the the skills and the capability to hold these conversations. They're not easy conversations, but when you have them and you have a flow to them that really uh, sits nicely, shows that you know, the manager cares, uh, shows that the manager uh, is listening, shows that there is a, an exchange. It's not just a you know, kind of a policy mandate that's happening. Um, what I've measured and with my team is that um, teams are performing you know, to new levels of performance compared to those that don't apply that. Uh, the, the conversation of team agreements, funny, you, you mentioned that we, we have a, in, in uh, Novartis, there is a team agreement, um, what we call a team booster, which is a sort of a, uh, a very encouraged um, way and mechanism to be able to get to team agreements. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then everyone at the end signs an agreement. And uh, it's useful in, some, in a lot of instances. And in this instance of going into the how, we are more encouraging a, what we call a how conversation, which is, how can teams deeply using also some mechanisms go deeper than a team agreement? They might not end up signing a paper like, no, this is how we agree, but they might reflect more on what were the moments where as a team, they were at their best. Mm. And then uh, find those, try to find those moments back. Yeah. That's really the whole conversation in a sense. So I think the two combined really um, is what we are now starting to explore with um, uh, with my venture, which is very much like, okay, is there a way that we can create commitment with a team and at the same time have the depth of the conversation? Yeah. And that is not awkward, <laughs> but it's really there. And we, we find that the recipe is the manager. Uh, so at the moment, right? Uh, maybe we find something else in the next few months, but uh, so far, no, we think that the recipe, uh, that the person that has the ingredient that can make it happen is the manager. We've spoken previously about psychological safety and Amy Edmondson's work. And that really is a foundational um, component. And, you know, that project Aristotle from Google, they tried to look at what made up their best teams. They looked at 180 teams around the world and 240 factors for each team. And they came up with five team norms. Number one was psychological safety. Number two is dependability. Number three was clarity of of um, landmarks and goals. Number four was meaning, and number five was, uh, sorry, number four was purpose. Number five was was um, impact. And uh, but by far the most important was the psychological safety, because as you just mentioned, that underpins everything, because it means how you can have the conversation, robust conversations about dependability, about clarity of of um, you know roadmaps and all that sort of thing, and you need to be able to have those at times, difficult discussions and, and get some sort of agreement. It's not always a democracy, but at least people feel heard in working out how we're going to go forward. I don't have a, a perfect definition of psychological safety. I think you are absolutely spot on when you say it's one of the, the big foundation um, of any uh, work environment um, should be psychological safety. Absolutely, no, 100%. I do see a variety of ways to achieve that uh, when I observe organizations you know, trying to get there. I think there is those that are uh, really doing the hard work you know, to create the environment, the workplace, as well as the, the culture where psychological safety is very strongly embedded. And therefore, um, they are achieving it by working you know, towards, um, uh, by just by doing the work, by doing it with care with empathy, uh, by leading with authenticity, vulnerability, uh, that is what creates the space. And you can 
anyone here probably has um, in the, the experience a been opening the door of a company. Could be a client, could be a supplier, whatever. You open the door of a company and you have a boost of energy that comes as soon as you open the door Yeah, by yeah. being there. Mm. Those companies, mostly, if you have had that experience, that is a company that you can, I can nearly guarantee, will have had a certain way of doing things, which is yeah. embedded in the culture, which has helped to protect psychological safety. And on the other end, I see also companies that are trying hard, but maybe um, doing it by um, talking more than by doing. And, uh, and I'm very critical, I know, when, and I sound very critical when I say that, but they, they are companies that are talking all about psychological safety. I see them on LinkedIn and I'm sometimes you know, feeling very sad mm -hmm. because it's all about you know, what appears to be focused on that. Yeah. However, when you open the door of that company and you um, start to feel the culture, you see there is something out. There is, you don't feel welcome. You, you don't feel like you know, there is uh, people there that that caring for you or you are hearing you know, that there there is no conflict or this actually there's something odd in those companies and you can recognize it i'm sure that all of our audience here will have potentially already experienced that you just have to open uh, the, the door and see what happens to your body your reaction how you feel about it and and i'm probably clear that you knowing in my experience and the data i captured in the last few years is you know quite consistently if you put too much emphasis on psychological safety by talking about it, it's most likely that you're covering that you're not doing something about it. So <laughs> my invitation is make sure that you are not just talking about it, just change the way you do things as a leader to really foster the element of the culture of your team. And psychological safety will be a resulting factor of it, as opposed to something that you need to anchor. Uh, one of the danger zones is when someone talks about it openly, that I'm already like, okay, I'm turned on, right? So if you if you start by saying, I'm going to try to create psychological safety here, I was like, okay, that you're not creating psychological safety right now. Um, no, and uh, and it does not matter how you say it, you know, as nice as you want or as little, no. Just act on it and stop talking about it, I think would be my advice to the people. Definitely. And, uh, you know, one of the things I do in, you know, whether it's a, a webinar or a keynote or a workshop is ask people to reflect on, a great team they've been part of, and it could be this role, previous role, could it be when they worked at McDonald's or were in a sporting team as a as a child. What was it? What, what made it different? And you know, I provide usually, I think there's about nine or ten options, you know, clear strategy, complementary strengths, um, you know, working with each other, but always the top three or in 95% of the cases. The top three things that come up, come up are we cared about each other, we enjoyed working together, and we had each other's back. <laughs> so quite simple concepts, but do speak also to psychological safety. And and I think it goes quite deep, to be honest, Graham, it's, it's, because it, it also relates in how the company functions in the background. So um, when I'm hearing or how, when I'm reviewing uh, rewards plans or um, I'm looking at you know, how talent attraction or retention is done, uh, policies, the way that people are being evaluated at the end of the year uh, or during the year, I, it goes quite deep in uh, in the way that it's done. So if, if there is a, if, it, if the company cares about you know, their people, typically um, they are moving away from the more traditional HR models, which we have seen. And I don't want to criticize them. They've been there for a reason because there was nothing and, and it's great. But moving towards more employee experience focused um, uh, movements you know, within organizations, which are looking at that from an end-to-end -end journey of 
of their people. Um, and uh, I think that when companies are starting to shift the focus on the human side, like the real human, not just the resource part of the human, but the human element, and look at that as a as a whole, they it's not they cannot draw immediate benefits. I agree. I mean, I've seen that, and I've had the endless debates with our executives. You have no tangible benefits that comes from it that you can measure directly from the impact of caring for people. However. Um, when you look at the intangible benefits and then you look at and you are doing qualitative research into your people and that says, no, actually, there's something that has changed here. Mm. So you're like, ah, ah, that's interesting. Mm. What has changed? Mm. Why has it changed? You know, oh, yeah, my, my manager is so much, uh, so much better in the way that we are doing as a team. I mean, I feel like I belong. And, and and this is an invitation. I know that sometimes, you know, I kind of go in an echo chamber when I, when I say that. But we are measuring in organizations. I say we as a large we. You know, organizations are measuring engagement. And every year I look at the Gallup report about engagement, which is one of the reference, and says, well, no, people don't feel really engaged. Um, that's kind of my summary. Okay, I generalized. I'm sure that we'll get a lot of comments about it. But effectively, there is a bit of like, you know, um, an engagement paranoia. And so... When we are focusing on experience, most of the time, it's all about, oh, we are going to communicate better. We are going to market what we do better. But actually, what is it? It's about, um, it's not about engagement. I think it's about belonging. Mm -hmm. And okay. that's something which many organizations should start measuring more. It's mm -hmm. measure belonging. Don't measure engagement only, measure belonging. Because people can be engaged. I can come to work and feel like, yeah, you know, I'm happy and I'm engaged. But actually, I don't really feel I belong there mm. uh, because maybe I don't really enjoy my relationship with my leader or my team members or you know just you know the brand sometimes as well. But very frequently, it's about um, it's about managers and the relationship between the manager and the way for the the manager or the leader to create the culture of the team, to foster the culture of the team, to to keep the team you know um, in in a state of creative tension so that they can be at their best at the edge and achieve the edge. And at the same time, um, you know, looking at the belonging element, because people that speak during exit interviews say it very clearly, you know, I did not feel I belonged there because I did not really appreciate the culture that was created around me. Yeah. It's really, I think that is something that I, I wish maybe, you know, it's, it's too early, but you know, I wish that there is a kind of direction and the movement towards, really starting to actively measure uh, belonging because that that yes. is yes. that is going to be the key and critical key with with the upcoming generation as well uh, that's going to probably be the factor of choice for some people to join organizations and to leave them as well that sense of uh, connection and belonging is just so again foundational we we have we're humans we have that need to feel part of a group part of a tribe whatever you want to call it it's how we've survived over the um over the decades and over the centuries as being part of a group and feeling that we have people around us who will support us and uh it is very very important and and it's become challenged in this world of work that's happened with uh, with COVID and, um, you know, more people not being in the same room together. And uh, I think ultimately it is one of the biggest um, challenges for workplaces. How do we build that sense of belonging when hybrid is, is going to be the future of work and where and how we work is going to vary? But how, how do we keep building that sense of uh, belonging? 
Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. The first resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist, which contains all the elements that you will need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. One of the things that um, you spoke very enthusiastically about in Sydney when we met was the metaverse and um, virtual reality. So much so that you inspired my co-founder in WeCare365, Brendan, to go out and buy <laughs> some goggles. <laughs> Did he? He's bought, he bought some goggles basically. I'm not sure he's actually used them, but he's bought them and he showed me a pair. Now, you've looked into, into this in quite depth compared to most people. What, what are your observations about it in terms of how it will affect the future of work? And, and, and can it? improve a sense of belonging, do you think, when we aren't in the same room together? There's not just one easy answer to that question, as you know, <laughs> but I will try to be concise and precise, you know, how I bring this. Uh, and I'm sure we'll make a mistake by doing that, but let me uh, try. Um, so th- they are, um, as part of a new venture, we are doing research into two spaces right now, and they are technology-driven because of the moment we are in as a society, as opposed to just what we are trying to research. Um, And one is the metaverse, which we have been researching for more than eight months now. And the other one is the um, artificial intelligence with the emergence of tools that can really um, accelerate some of our thinking, but also be a detriment to our thinking. And I will come back on that now in a minute. On the metaverse, we are really focusing on what's the impact on work, as opposed to metaverse is a concept um, I mean, some people talk about the metaverse as being the next big thing, the 30, the probably about $40 billion invested every year by big companies to just make it happen. And, and in the press, it goes from, wow, it's fantastic to, boo, you know, uh, no one is using it. So I think there is, it, it's really early. Um, and it's not just about, for, for the audience, not just putting a, um, a piece of technology on your face like a headset that looks like a really bulky, and I have one probably next to me, so I can show it, but a a sort of a bulky piece of plastic with a screen that you put, and then suddenly you are in this fantastic world. No, I don't think the metaverse is about that. I think the metaverse is a a three, it's kind of a a three-dimensional environment, which is digitalized, that helps to foster social and, and work connections. Now, through it, it's true that there is a more, there is a piece of it which, looks at uh, real estate transactions, uh, NFTs, and blockchain. If you are into it, great. No, Be my guest and come and teach me more because I'm an angry learner into that space. But I'm not going to speak about that today. The metaverse that we are studying is the metaverse impact on work, which is typically more about collaborating or creating sense of belonging and um, having the element of uh, networking that comes with it. And what we have evaluated is the difference how people meet when they are in different time zones, in different places, using a metaverse technology, using the technology like Zoom, Teams, and others, and the uh, the no technology. So be all in presence. 
what we found was quite uh, interesting in the sense that when we evaluate that around collaboration, innovation, creativity, belonging, uh, and uh, networking, what we are finding is that using the metaverse, you are as close as you can be to an in-person meeting. Why? And this is the big, I think, the. And I'm not going to reveal anything fancy, but this is the big moment. Is We realize that the people that speak about the metaverse that are quite negative about it, if not tried it for six months, seven months, eight months, or never. And what I found is by showing people, by letting them experience what we have experienced now for the last few months, they suddenly realize like, oh, hold on a minute. That is different to what I did before. And, and I think that's why also this, this I think this technology is at only emerging stage is because you need to have a certain mass of people that are trying it, that I see the benefits to then be able to make it uh, go through into your work environment. So we are years away before we are all going to be connecting and using those uh, moments. And it will not remove this, the social connections of in-person. I can assure you that it will be a mix of both. It might just enhance the way you collaborate from a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might just enhance the way you can network from a distance because I think that people are becoming a lot more eco-conscious as well and uh, sustainability conscious. And so traveling is a big part of businesses. And and, and now we are we see organizations starting to move towards a bit less travel, uh, try to optimize it. How can you still connect? And you have technology, we provide you. But the technology provided today by organizations, i.e. Zoom, Teams, Google Meet, etc., is not going to create the sense of belonging that you need to be able to create together, to collaborate together. And this is where I think the meta has an interesting role to play. Let's, let's be clear. I think it has a role to play. What we are missing is people putting a headset and trying it. And so we still see a lot of commentary of people that say, yeah, well, no, I don't see the, the, the point. But um, then when I hand up when I hand over the headset and say, try it and tell me then, you know, don't, don't judge before you try, judge after you try. And let me show you. And it's not perfect. That's for sure. And it's improving. Uh, but I do see a big role about it. Um, and and maybe it's not the, it's the word metaverse that scares people a little bit. It has been also uh, grabbed by big, big, big corporates, you know, into the world to say, oh, that's all of our focus. No. And, and we are kind of in danger because it looks like social media, big brother, data, no, I'm giving my life away, et cetera. But actually, when you look at it from the lens of work, it's super useful. It's actually quite, quite, uh, quite different and uh, energizing to be there. And I, I, I will admit, I cannot stay in the metaverse doing work more than 90 minutes for two reasons. One, the battery time of these headsets is more, no more than 90 minutes. Game <laughs> over. But the yeah. second one is that I am much more immersed into the discussion when I use it. I have no distractions, nothing around me that can distract me. I don't watch my emails. I don't watch my watch. I don't, I don't look at my phone. I'm in this environment and I'm concentrated so much on the discussion that I found was actually more productive and more efficient in using that technology than using something where I still have my distractions around me. You know, in, in this room that you don't see, you, know, you see only my behind me. I have Legos here on my left. I have you know, a bottle of water. I have a camera. I have my screens. I have my iPad and stuff. I'm in a world of distraction. <laughs> the metaverse, there is zero distraction. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's really um, something that struck me. And then I was impressed by some technology advancement 
using AI to recognize my intonation. No, I speak English, but with a very strong French accent. I'm sure all of them, all of you will have noticed that. And um, actually, you know, it still recognizes my intonation, still mimics my um, face. It might not look at my muscles to recognize when I'm smiling or when I'm sad or, you know, to create more emotions, but the next version of the headsets are doing that. Mm. And effectively, I think it's, it's going to be quite an interesting world. No, um, there are two movies that really scared me you know, about the metaverse. One is um, Surrogate with Bruce Willis, uh, 2008, something like that. It's worth, it's, worth, uh, it's worth checking it. And uh, the other one is, um, uh, what's the name? It's on Netflix. It's uh, it's the Rogue World. It's Rogue One, Rogue One World. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a movie where... Uh, young people play a game like a live game, but in a sort of a world environment. And and there is a book about it. And I think one of my friends in Belgium said, "Oh yeah, you must see this movie." And I, I did watch it, and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> "I hope the world of the future is not like this." But um, and I hope there is still much more human connection amongst people. But it does it does show us also that with any advancement, there could be some abuse, and so. Uh, we have to find the right balance and, and we just have to um, develop a critical spirit mm. as kids and to our kids. I think we have to give them that. We need to really help them to develop that critical spirit, to recognize what's good and what's not good. I mean, it, it sounds so trivial and so basic, but but to be honest, that's what's going to really, I think, you know, make the world a better world in the future is if we can, from a very young age, really teach them. Because access to technology is not going to help them to teach them that. Actually, it will make them worse. Uh, mm. And then, so that's maybe the, the balancing with the metaverse to the AI. Um, I think AI is, has the potential to make us all done. Mm. Um, so what's the skill of the future that we have to teach our kids now? It's about you know, um, being creative. It's about um, really thinking. So it's a thinking element that's going to save that component. And it's the critical spirit. It's the ability to compare, to research, to, to not take a piece of information and think that's the truth. Yeah, it, that is a skill, and I think that's a skill that we're not teaching enough at schools. Uh, that needs to be really brought back in, you know, into it. I mean, uh, I was um, uh, just the anecdote. I was visiting a school um, last weekend with uh, with my son, and uh, I had an opportunity to to. He was away in the classrooms, and I was kind of asking the, the head teacher there, showing us the school and having a great chat. But I was like, I have a philosophical question. What what do you think? education looks like in 10 years because with the emergence of chat gpt and uh, all of what we are hearing dali mid johnny and all of these bots what what is it that you need to change or what is it you do already today that is going to help our kids learn how to live in a world where they have access to all of it now i have a son nine years old he's already on chat gpt i mean does it scares me yes if i introduced it to him might be uh, you know, and so, uh, but, but but how do you help our next generation to be ready for having access to all of this potential knowledge that you not know, comes at the fingertip without doing much work? And so, the effort that we are going to have to shift towards is the, the efforts around creativity and the efforts around thinking. That's going to be the differential factor for people in life in the future. That I, I can nearly guarantee that. And and no, it's it's about when and how we are making it happen. And I think that's really a collective responsibility to 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 look into it. 
And and it's a, it's a part of me is scared, part of me is excited, but uh, somehow in between the two, uh, there's still no happy medium. So we need to watch out, but also we need to not be uh, feeling like, you know, oh, I'm I'm against it. Um, I would just invite people to say, come and try. Yeah. And if you are not comfortable to try by yourself, it's okay. It's okay. Mm. Try to find someone that can show it to you, that is going to be uh, caring about you so that you can you can actually really give your best in trying something new and, and don't um, don't just put it away because maybe it does not do what you would like to do. One thing we um, have to think about when talking about the future of working is uh, Gen Z and millennials. Mm-hmm. They're obviously going to be a huge part of the future of working. And before we started today, you just shared briefly some research you were looking at about you know, the motivations of that group. Would you mind just sharing with people what you've uh, found out so far? Absolutely. Uh, it was it was so fascinating, you know, I had to, to mention that. And, and let me start by um, sharing what the world thinks of Gen Z. And uh, and we, we, st- we are studying right now, not just Gen Z, but also the late millennials. So anyone born between 1992 and 2000, no, about that. So that's a year, eight years group. No, it will capture some Gen Z, but it will also capture Gen Z starts around 1997. So we need to just, you know, be a little bit cognizant that they are not all into the work environment yet. So we just need to look at that from a late millennials because they have similar threats in terms of access to technology, etc. And so when, um, so in, in the research, we found something interesting, but before I go there, let me give what I then received when I started to chat with a very senior executive in a, in, a, in a large organization. And it happened to be that that executive was at a conference where they were talking about it. So he sent me a screenshot, which I have just in front of me, so I can read it to you and to the audience. What are the top five things that you know, Gen Z engaged into right now? Gender, role, flexibility, LGD, LGBTQ plus rights, eco-consciousness, ecological concern, and solving problems growing development and opportunities top five bottom five bottom five patriarchy family most important prefer money over time longing for tradition longing for tradition and happy spending so we are hearing no kind of a uh, we are hearing and and i can relate to that because i've been to various conferences i've looked at papers and most of the times we are saying that the gen z coming is looking for opportunities experiences development and they are really angry around that. And then in the bottom is typically you no know, more of a uh, my or oh, my work life balance and money. Then with my team, we started doing a research not just two weeks ago on Gen Z thinking. Hmm, okay, let's let's do our own job. Let's show that we can do it too. So we started to build a persona around Gen Z, and as part of the technique to build one persona, we are doing qualitative interviews. So we do qualitative interviews. Two nights ago, I was in an interview with a young chap in Paris in the fashion industry telling me all about his life. And I was listening very carefully. And then uh, when I say, what's your motivation into work? Yeah, it's true. Experience no, was number one. But number two was money. Interesting. Because that's not what we are told. Then, you know, uh, I uh, for the anecdote, you know, I started to look at, okay, what's the quantitative coming back to? <laughs> and so I exchanged with one of my colleagues you know, who is uh, in Dublin and he said, Olivier, you, you can't believe it. The first answer we got on what is it that's important for you in a job is money. The second, then the second person replies compensation and cash. 
the third person replies money. And I'm like, are they any different to anyone else? <laughs> or is it that the world has just become so greedy about money? What, what, what happened? And I don't have the answer. Um, I, I was surprised by the result because, um, because of all of the research that we have been taught. And I'm not suggesting the research is wrong. I'm just saying, is there something that has happened in the last one year or two years or COVID that has somehow shifted um, those previous researches that has been done, which were focused on development and opportunities, and we have seen it in large organizations, to something a little bit more trivial that people are just saying, you know what, what I want is progression and money. It was progression in money. The, the, the other word was progression. And so um, were we any different when we were younger? I wonder, and I don't think we were. I don't think that you know anyone actually can say it because we are here touching a very, uh, to a large degree, the life cycle of life. Yeah. When we start, no, we are aspiring to be those people that you know are out there in the world. Um, they are not OP groups. They are more senior, more you know, kind of a wealthy, etc. Uh, when we then move and we start having responsibilities, like you know, taking a mortgage, maybe having kids or whatever you know people do in life, then suddenly the, the shift of responsibility and sense of what's important in life might change. Yeah. But that might not be just related to generation. It might just be related to. To, to where we are in life. No, however, I was still quite surprised. And I, I, I wish we can complete the research now and finish <laughs> it and publish it because, because to be honest, I think we need to learn. I think we yeah. need to really hear that generation and, and, and hear what is driving them. Yeah. Is the world of work needs to adapt to them? Um, probably to a certain extent, no? because of the access to tech and, and information. Who knows? We'll see. No? So yeah. that's been a bit of my uh, the, the reference I was sharing with you earlier. Yeah, very, very interesting to see how that um, how that plays out. You're obviously very engaged in life, Olivier, and you uh, love learning. That's very obvious. How do you switch off? How do you um, <laughs> restore your own spirit? How do you what what, what sort of things are good for your self care? Yeah, uh, it's funny you ask that question, Graham, because I was reflecting on it. And I would say, okay, <laughs> I don't think I do enough. Let's be clear. Um, into caring about myself. And there have been some events that taught me a lot more recently than um than previously. So I've always been very driven, uh, very full of energy, uh, very focused on work. And family as well, um, but work has been a big part of my my life, and therefore, you know, kind of through the passion. I'm sure you can hear the passion. It's been kind of a let's go all in. Um, in every venture that I've had the chance to to lead, you know, when I was uh, doing this uh, luxury goods uh, venture, we were out at events. Actually, even the family joined, and 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 I had different times to disconnect than most people would see time to disconnect. You no, know? it's not like watching a movie or. Um, reading a book, you know, et cetera. I, I do disconnect, but in other ways, like, you know, spending time with my son or spending time with my wife. And that really has has helped me to, to continue to grow. But then there was a moment in life when um, maybe it's relevant for me to share something, which I've always heard from a very young age from obesity. And um, and since a kid, right? And when I was uh, 16 years old, uh, I was weighing 127 kilos and uh, so you can imagine, right, that in life that does teach you a few things because you are different to other people. Um, no, and I, I would not say I've been bullied, but yes, I was called the, hot, the big potato, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, it's like everything that you hear from, you know, kind of 
stigmas, stig, stigmas from schools and stuff. Yeah, it's true. It happens. No, kids are horrible and that's fine. You move in life, but that creates a certain element of being protected. You no, know, and, and you create strategies to protect yourself. No, as I uh, moved on in life, when I was uh, 26, I did a big effort to try to reduce that uh, obesity problem by focusing on my nutrition and focusing on my health. And uh, with some support of um, some specialists in Belgium, I did that fantastically. Lost 40 kilos, has never been happy in my life, met my wife, you know, it's just completely changed my life. So what happened after that is that um, I experienced two moments where I started to gain weight again. And those moments were related to work and stress. Mm. Uh, one of the most recent one was the 2016 to 2019 when I was leading the employee experience team at BP. We were doing a major transformation, changing the entire way we worked uh, at BP, including the systems, including uh, the, the business model for HR, etc. So it was a large program. And just during that time, I started to, uh, food was kind of a, and especially sugary food was kind of a, a refuge for stress levels that I was exposed to. And so I started to gain weight again. Mm. And so I then ended up being in a position where when you are morbidly obese um, and you are 40, you know, you, the people are looking around you and they say, maybe you should do something about it. And, and then two years ago, I met with a professor which really changed my life. And I think developed these strategies to protect myself even more now and to take care of, of myself more. Uh, and that has been a big of a shock moment uh, in in life. No, so I, I lost sixty five kilos since then. Wow. Uh, you know, and I I'm I'm even I'm driving, but I, something has changed in me, which means that you no, know, I take I think I value life very differently to what I used to value life differently. No, that's my journey, and I I don't pretend that anyone will go through that journey or you know suggest you know that I look for care or compassion. Just you no, know, just hear me out. That's been my life journey. And now I realize that life is more important than what maybe I was qualifying it before. Yeah. But when you are in this moment and you realize it, you are suddenly taking a lot more care about yourself. So um, how I disconnect, I do sports. Um, and once a week, I have a sports coach that, you know, is costing me a bomb, but actually I like it because it pushes me in the thinking. And I do nothing else at that moment than just focus on myself and focus on my strengths. Yeah. And and he's there and pushing me crazy. And, but I love that. Even if it, it hurts, actually, you know, physically it hurts because it's kind of hurting on the muscles. It's actually a way for me to disconnect from a very busy life where I, I don't make it much different between work and, and, and personal life. Uh, another strategy that I've applied is um, a different nutrition program. So instead of um, eating three times a day, I eat six times a day. Uh, I eat a lot of proteins. That's been you know, kind of suggested to me because of what I've experienced. And to be able to maintain, and uh, I think that's really how I somehow find a, an equilibrium into this very full uh, life of mine. But I did; it did remind me something: is that you know, there's nothing more important than health. Mm. Um, Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. It's a wonderful to hear that journey and how you've uh, come through it. It's been so lovely uh, catching up today. I, I always finish with. Um, one question, and that question, maybe you've covered a bit in that last bit of the discussion, but, you know, reflecting on your life, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self now if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, and with care, give that person advice? Yeah. I think I would shake the guy 
uh, you know, and uh, I would say, look, you think that ambition is everything um, and that you will succeed because of what you are experiencing, you know, with that and there, you know, the passion will be the motor and the fuel engine that will make it work. Uh, I would say, just be gentle to your own self and actually probably say, do something you love because you might do different turns by doing that uh, than what, you know, I have done. You might achieve something different overall, but uh, do something you love as opposed to try to progress just for the sake of progression or ambition and, uh, and you will be happy. That's what I would say to my young self. And what great advice. Thank you so much for the time today, Olivier. It's um, been, yeah, a wonderful chat and very, very interesting just hearing about the future of working. Thanks for being part of The Caring CEO. Absolute pleasure, Graham. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.